Well, please turn to your in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. I think it's been about a month. We need to get reacclimated to the book of Mark. And our text this morning is going to be verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 20 to 25. 26 is there, but there's not good textual evidence for verse 26, but it is a large, largely a repetition of verse 25. But Mark 11, beginning at verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Verse 26 is there in brackets. It probably is not part of the original, but it is lifted from another place. It's definitely part of Scripture, and I think it's probably taken from Matthew 6. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So, get our minds back to the Passion Week of Jesus. This is the last week that Jesus will spend on earth in his mortal body. On Friday of this week, he will die. On Sunday, he will be raised. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. On that previous Sunday, which we call Palm Sunday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to the adoring welcome of multitudes who demonstrated their homage for him by carpeting his path with leafy branches as if they were receiving a king or, or some conquering general. And he came into the shouts of, Hosanna, Lord, save, taken from the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, ascribing to Jesus the kingship of David's throne. He comes in that day, that Palm Sunday, he surveys the temple, and then he retreats two miles to Bethany to the home of his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. On the following day, Monday, he comes back into the city of Jerusalem, and two significant events happened, you remember. The cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. After that day, Jesus again withdraws to Bethany, presumably for his own protection. His hour has not yet come. That brings us to Tuesday of the Passion Week. This day actually will take us all the way up to Mark chapter 14. The day begins with what I just read. And I think I'm going to entitle this message, A Secondary Lesson from the Withered Fig Tree. I'm going to have four points. And the first is this, the apparent illustration of believing prayer. I think it'll make sense to you in a few minutes. An apparent illustration of believing prayer. Again, verses 20 to 22. As they were passing by in the morning, they're coming back into the city, and they passed by the place where Jesus had cursed the fig tree, and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, 
have faith in God. Now, last time we saw what is clearly the main point of Jesus cursing the fig tree. The main point was it was a, a symbolic condemnation of the religion of Judaism, a condemnation of Israel. You see, it was the time for figs. In fact, the leaves came out before the figs, but this tree was showing all kinds of leaves, but no fruit. And it appears clearly to be a picture of Israel. Israel is making a leafy show of religion, but they're not connected to God. There's no holiness. There's no obedience to God. There's no fruit. All leaves and no fruit. And Jesus' cursing of this fig tree was not because he had, you know, he was frustrated because he couldn't find food on it because he was hungry and it was breakfast time, because, but because it was a symbol of the fruitless, unfruitful nation of Israel. I won't take the time, but if you look at Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, Israel is compared to a vineyard, and God worked hard to prepare that vineyard. He dug it out, and he did everything to plant it, and he expected fruit from it. When fruit did not appear, he says, it's going to be laid waste. No rain is going to fall on it. It's not going to be pruned or hoed. In other words, I have a right to a return from my investment. I invested in this vineyard. It's not bringing me any fruit, and it's going to be wasted. Also a picture of Israel. In Luke 13, Jesus uses the imagery of a fig tree to describe Israel. Luke 13, beginning at verse 6. He says there, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he did not find any. And he said to the vine vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You see... Jesus is, again, using a fig tree as a picture of Israel. And so it's quite clear <clears throat> that in cursing the fig tree, Jesus was condemning the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Here they were, the Jewish people, greatly privileged. They had the scriptures. They had the law given to them on Mount Sinai. They had the covenants. They had the promises. They had the temple service. And now the very Messiah of Israel was in their midst. But what had they done with all this privilege? Instead of obeying the law of God, they had choked it out with their own man-made traditions. Instead of obeying the major issues of the law, they had become preoccupied with minutia of the law, tithing, mint, dill, and cumin. Instead of, uh, instead of allowing the law of God to be a tutor, to lead them to see that they need a savior, they didn't see that they needed a savior. They didn't see that they were sinful. Instead of seeing the blood of bulls and goats as just a picture of the one who would come and truly take away sin, they saw it as an end in themselves. And now the Messiah was among them. But as John 1.11 says, he came to his own, his own people, but his own people did not receive him. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon corrupt Judaism and upon the nation of Israel that embodied that corruption. But if that's the main, primary, and explicit lesson to be gained from Jesus cursing the fig tree, it is not the only lesson. Consider our text. Jesus had cursed the fig tree. They went to Bethany. They're coming back the next day. 
Within 24 hours, this fig tree went from having lush leaves to being utterly withered and shriveled up from the roots because Jesus had cursed it. And Peter, and likely the others with him, marveled at that and said, Rabbi, the respectful title for teacher, look or behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And his wonderment is sort of calling for a response from Jesus. He's saying, look, Lord, this is amazing. You said a few words in that, that fig tree that was lush with leaves is now all shriveled up. How did this happen? That's the implied question. And the response of Jesus gives us, I think, a secondary lesson from the cursing of the fig tree. What does Jesus respond with? Have faith in God. Lord, look at this fig tree. It's all shriveled up. Have faith in God, Peter. Now, there are some texts that say, if you have faith in God, but that's probably not the correct reading because then his words, truly, I say to you, would be in the middle of a sentence. And whenever Jesus says, truly, I say to you, it's always at the start of a sentence. So the manuscript evidence, and you know that there are sometimes manuscript differences on minor things. They don't affect any doctrine. When we say the Bible's inerrant, we say the original autographs are inerrant, and we don't have them. And so there are manuscript differences, but we have immense data, immense manuscript evidence for the New Testament. So this should not in any way, you know, make our faith a question. Um, so he probably says, have faith in God. What, what does he mean? What is he saying? Well, Jesus has worked this miracle. He's cursed this fig tree. And Peter marvels, behold, Lord, the fig tree that you cursed. And then Jesus exhorts Peter and the others, have faith in God. Clearly, Jesus is making a connection between the powerful working of God, contrary to nature, and faith. What does cursing the fig tree have to do with having faith in God? Well, Jesus is obviously connecting these two. What is faith? Well, let me back up. Faith, he seems to be saying, seems to be the instrument here that unleashed the power of God. Lord, the fig tree you cursed. Have faith in God, Peter. It seems like faith is the key to, to unleashing the power of God. Now, what is faith? But the scriptures tell us, so Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But we have a really good definition of faith, I think, in Romans 4.20. You need not turn there. But concerning Abraham, it says, yet with, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Faith is connected to the promise of God. Faith, brothers and sisters, is believing God. It's taking God at his word. That's what faith is. And Jesus is saying, have faith in God. And he seems to be presenting himself as an example of faith. Peter, do you want to know how this fig tree came to be cursed? How I could speak a few words and it would shrivel? It seems to have something to do with Jesus' own faith in God. And can't we say that Jesus is a perfect example of faith? Now, on the one hand, he's God. He's the object of faith. 
But when Jesus came to earth in his humiliation, he was totally dependent on God his Father. And he had faith in God his Father. Yes, he's the object of faith as God, but he also is an example of faith. Listen to a couple of statements that speak about the faith that Jesus had in his Father. In John eleven forty two, I knew, Jesus is saying to his Father, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it. You always hear me. Jesus prayed to his Father with the confidence that the Father always heard him. In Hebrews 5, it talks about the faith of Jesus and his, uh, toward his Father. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety or his godly fear. Jesus had faith that his Father would, would rescue him from the grave, he had a, a faith in God that was exemplary. In 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was, uh, um, what does it say? He did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, yes, the object of faith, but he was also the great example of faith. He continually entrusted himself to God, his Father. In all that he endured, all of the reviling that he endured, even in the Garden of Gethsemane where he suffered such agony of soul, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Even upon the cross, he was entrusting himself to the Father. He's a perfect example of faith and trust. God, my Father, you know what is best for me. I trust you. Your will be done your way. So Jesus is implicitly pointing himself, pointing his disciples to his own faith relationship to the Father. Can you see that? Lord, the fig tree is, is withered. Have faith in God. Something about Jesus' faith resulted in this act of God to wither the fig tree. But consider the powerful effects of believing prayer from verse 23. Truly, he goes on to say, after saying, have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Jesus goes on to say that not only did I curse the fig tree, and it happened because of my faith, but faith is able to accomplish monumental things. You can say to a mountain, be moved. And if you don't doubt in your heart, it will happen. Now, the mountain he's speaking about is the Mount of Olives. The sea is the Dead Sea. It would be cataclysmic for that mountain to be lifted up and thrown into the sea. The commentator William Henderson says it would be about a 4,000-foot drop into the sea. But Jesus is clearly speaking figuratively here, isn't he, when he's talking about moving mountains. He often speaks figuratively. When he tells the disciples, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, he's not talking about nets and fish hooks. He's talking about winning people. When he compares truth to unshrunk cloth and new wine, he's not speaking literally but figuratively. 
when he says, to be my disciple, you need to be willing to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. He's not speaking literally. He's, he's using that as a figure of speech to point to the literal truth that you need to take sin seriously. And so when he's pointing to a mountain being thrown into the sea, he's not talking literally, but he is pointing to a literal truth. And that is that things that are impossible with man are possible with God. And it is faith, undoubting faith, that is the link between man's weakness, man's impotence, and man's helplessness, and God's almighty and gracious power. And a little later, we'll take a peek into Hebrews chapter 11, which is that faith chapter. And the writer to Hebrews tells us all that was accomplished through the instrumentality of faith. Abel, Abel believed God, and he offered a better sacrifice, and so he was accepted when Cain was not. Noah, believing God, built an ark in the face of all the ridicule. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, but trusting God to lead him to that promised land. Moses cast in his lot with the suffering people of God because he believed that unseen reality was was greater than, than the luxuries of Pharaoh's palace. Faith is also the mighty instrument in our justification. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What connects guilty, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinners with the total forgiveness of God and eternal life? Faith. We're justified by faith and therefore have peace with God. So faith is of vital importance as the means to God doing mighty things. But what kind of faith? The next point is the essential ingredient in believing prayer. What is the essential ingredient in believing prayer? Again, verses 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Now my outline is talking about believing prayer. But so far, I've only talked about faith. But verse 24 brings faith and prayer together. If you have faith in God, that's going to determine what you ask God in prayer. And when we pray, we must pray in faith. What is the essential ingredient if our prayers are going to unleash the power of God, which Jesus is saying here, Enable God to do what man cannot do, throw a mountain into the sea. What kind of believing prayer is it? Well, the key phrase is, it's a belief and prayer that does not doubt. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Now, if you're paying attention, that should trigger some questions in your mind. Because it kind of makes God sound like a genie in a lamp, doesn't it? You know, in that mythological story, you know, you rub the lamp, And out comes the genie with folded arms, and he says, your wish is my command. Whatever you want, I'll give you or do for you. 
Is Jesus saying that God's like a genie in a lamp and faith is the rubbing of the lamp and, and God comes out folded arms saying, your wish is my command, whatever you want, I'll do for you. Well, sadly, there are some people who take it that way. There's a whole movement afoot in our day called word faith or word of faith movement. Have you heard of it? They're kind of the name it and claim it people. They literally believe that you can speak reality into existence. And they're all about speaking positively. Don't speak negatively. You have to speak positively. And they could literally speak reality into existence. Well, I would say that that religion is blasphemous. And it's really devilish. Because it's claiming for people the power that only God has. Friends, only God can say, let there be and there comes to be. Only God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Only of God can it be said, as the humbled King Nebuchadnezzar said, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No, God's not a genie. Jesus is not saying that you can rub the lamp you know, with faith, and God's going to come, and he's going to say, whatever you want, I'll do for you. We mustn't take that teaching here out of the context of what Jesus and the Bible teaches elsewhere about prayer. You see, there are other things that the Bible says about conditions for answered prayer. One of them is that prayer needs to be from a sincere heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, Whenever you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray on the street corners in order to be seen by men. God's not going to answer that prayer. He's not going to come down and do mighty things through that prayer. You may get some praise from people. What is the praise of mortal men? It's empty. But God's not going to honor that prayer that is aimed horizontally, not vertically, I'm just praying to impress people with my language. That's not a prayer God's going to answer. Prayer also must be offered persistently. In Luke 18:1, Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not faint or not lose heart. Another prerequisite to answer prayer is persistency in prayer. Remember, he gives the illustration of the friend at midnight. The guy has has guests coming, and, you know, according to the East, you've got to show hospitality. He's got no bread, and he, he goes to his neighbor who's sleeping, and he persists in knocking. Hey, I need some bread for my, my visitor here. And the guy finally gets up because he's annoyed. And the point is, we need to persist in prayer. Prayer also must be in accord with the revealed will of God. Jesus himself in the garden said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup this cup of suffering passed from me. But how did he resolve it? Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In 1 John 5, 14, we're told if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So answered prayer must be in accordance with his will. Here's another text in John 15, 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. Do you see the connection there? 
If the words of Christ are abiding in you, then you're going, what you're going to ask is according to the words of Christ, according to the will of Christ, and then he will answer. Prayer also must be made in Jesus' name. In more than one place, in, in John, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And John 15 and verse 16 is one of those. I'll just read that. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, in my name means on his merits. The only way we have to approach God is through the mediation of Jesus. But to pray in Jesus' name also means to pray in light of who he is, consistent with his character. So God's not just a a genie in a lamp, and we just believe and say, I want this, I want that, and he comes and he does our bidding. There are other conditions for answered prayer. But let's assume that your prayers meet all of those criteria. Let's come back to the importance of our prayers being made in faith without doubting. I don't want to cancel that out. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. He still says, if you pray without doubting, you will have what you want. What does this this mean? It means that we need to believe what God has said without doubting. The word doubt, diacrino, in the original, means to be at variance with oneself, to hesitate, to vacillate. So in practicing this believing faith, I want to commend to you two dangers that we need to avoid. I'm calling one the iceberg of presumption and the other the sandbar of doubt. We need to steer our ship between the iceberg of presumption and the sandbar of doubt. What is the iceberg of presumption? That's when you commit God to doing something that he has not promised to do. When you commit God to doing something he has not promised to do. And a beautiful example of that is in Daniel chapter 3, and the three friends of Daniel who refused to bow down to the gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, they were sentenced to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Listen to these words, a wonderful example of not being presumptuous. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Follow that. God apparently had not given them special revelation that he was going to deliver them out of the fiery furnace. Did they have faith that he was able to do that? Absolutely. Did they have a promise from God that he would do that? No. And so they don't commit God to doing something he hasn't promised to do. He's able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. You see, they were avoiding 
the iceberg of presumption. They weren't committing God to doing something that apparently they had no revelation that he had promised to do. You know, during the 2020 election, there were so-called prophets who were prophesying what? President Trump was going to win the election, right? Well, it didn't happen. What happens when you commit God to doing something that he hasn't promised to do? You misrepresent God. You bring dishonor to God. And you prove foolish yourself, and in this case, probably a, a false prophet who ought to be taken out and stoned, according to Old Testament law, or not listened to anymore, because if you mess up one time, you're not a true prophet of God. And so there is the presumption, the iceberg of presumption. Some years ago, here in our community, there was a young Amish teenager, 17 or 18, who was dying of cancer. And he was surrounded by a bunch of word of faith people. And they were convinced that God was going to heal them. Now, should we pray for healing? Absolutely. We're praying for our brother Jim and his cancer. And it's dormant right now. And we're thankful God is able to heal. We pray for healing. But they were saying, God has told me God's going to heal him. God has God told you. God's told all of us that God's going to heal him. Well, he died. And then they got revelation from God that God's going to resurrect him. God's telling me God's going to raise him. What's God telling you? God's telling me he's going to raise him. He stayed dead. Well, it had an effect on at least one man who was awakened to the errors of the Word of Faith movement and came to have a bigger view of God. God is the one who determines when and whom he heals, not man. We don't speak reality into it. We pray and ask God. But it's God's will that gets the capital W, not man's. That was presumption. They made God look bad and no doubt would cause the faith of some young believers to stumble. So we, we don't want to be presumptuous in committing God to doing something he hasn't promised to do. We need to avoid that iceberg, but we also need to avoid the sandbar of doubt. And a good example of avoiding that sandbar is our father of the faith, Abraham. In Romans 14, there's one example of Abraham's faith. Faith is believing God, taking God at his word. If God says it, I believe it, I bank on it. Romans 4, 19 to 21, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. God promised, you're going to have a son. He's going to be born to you, a 100-year-old man, and Sarah, whose womb is long dead. Because God said it, he believed it. But Abraham is even a greater example of undoubting faith, as recorded in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. And there we read, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. God had promised Isaac is the son who's going to be 
the heir of many. Your line is going to come through Isaac, which means Isaac has to grow up, and Isaac has to have children who have children who have children. And then God turns around and says, I want you to slay Isaac. We can hardly imagine the perplexity, the confusion, the doubt that would have racked the the poor soul of, of this man, Abraham. Wait, he's the child of promise. Now you want me to slay him on an altar? But what does it say? He didn't doubt. He clung to God's promise with all he was worth. If I kill him, God's just going to have to raise him from the dead because God promised it. What a wonderful example of not doubting the promise of God. Abraham's faith did not run aground on the sandbar of doubt. So on the one hand, we must not believe that God must do what he has not promised to do. That's presumption. On the other hand, we must not fall short of believing that God will do all that he has said he will do. You know, you can look at, if we had time, we'd look at Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith. Noah believed God. God said, I want you to build a boat. Here are the dimensions. Here are the materials. Despite the the mocking he received from his generation, he proceeded to build that ark, and he and his family were preserved through it while the rest of the world perished because he believed God, contrary to all reason and appearance. You know, I don't hear any, any thunder. I don't hear any rain on the horizon. Abraham believed God. God said, I want you to leave or the Chaldees, go to a place where I will show you. And he went, not knowing where he was going, but knowing God was good and God was going to take him to a good place. Sarah, it says, despite some initial unbelieving laughter, believed God contrary to appearance and the laws of nature because God had promised that she would have a child in her old age. Moses grows up and because he believes that the things seen are temporal and the things unseen are eternal, he recognizes that the Hebrew people are God's people. They are my people and I'm going to forfeit all the luxuries of Pharaoh's palace and I'm going to cast in my lot to them because, with them because I believe God. And then it says in Hebrews 11.30, the people of Joshua's day believed God when he told them to do something that had no rational connection with the outcome. God said, march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, shout, and the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. Now, it didn't take a physicist to understand that the decibels of our voices are not going to bring down the thick walls of Jericho. But God said it, and they did it, and those walls fell outward because they believed God. So, Jesus says the kind of faith that God honors and and does supernatural things, great things that we can't do, is a faith that doesn't doubt So we ask the question, how do we develop that faith, that kind of faith that doesn't doubt God's word? I'll say a few things about it. First of all, here's something very hopeful. Faith is something that can grow. I don't know about you, but my faith isn't now where I want it to be. It's not where it should be. But here's a hopeful thing. Faith can grow. Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. Isn't that encouraging? 
the faith that you have now can grow. Faith can get enlarged. It can, it can grow greater. We can grow in faith. And so we ask, well, how will that happen? And let me suggest a few ways. First of all, we expand in our faith as we expand in our knowledge of God's word and his promises. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If faith is taking God at his word, the more we understand of his word, the more it will enlarge our faith. The more we understand of what God's will is and his promises are, and we're able to put our trust in them. So an expanding knowledge of the word of God will expand our faith. Further, faith grows by acting upon the word. Jesus says something very interesting in John 7, 17. If any man is willing to know the teaching, his teaching, whether it is of God, if any man is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak on my own authority. Do you want to know whether God's word is true? You have to be willing to do his will. As you do his will and you obey him, you find out it's true. His promises are true. He's faithful, not only knowing the word of God, but doing it. If any man is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God. Yes, this is of God, because as I do it, God does exactly what he says he will do. And one other thing, Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 tells us, Everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. How does your faith grow? It grows as you know the word of God, practice the word of God, and as you find God faithful, you realize, well, when I did this and I, I believed God, look at what God did. When I didn't believe God, when I doubted, look at what happened. And so we get our senses trained by practice. The more we practice doing God's will and God's word, the more we find him faithful and our own faith is enlarged. Well, one more point in the text. The required disposition behind believing prayer. Back to our text. We've seen that faith, believing prayer, is the key that unlocks the power of God. To be effectual, it must be unwavering and undoubting faith. Then God will unleash his power on our behalf. But in order for our prayers to be effectual, there's one additional requirement. Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. When you stand praying, you know there are different postures for prayer. You can stand, you can kneel, you can lift up your arms to God, you can lay on your face. The posture of your body is not nearly as important as the posture of your heart. And Jesus says if our prayers are to be effectual, if our prayers are going to unleash the power of God, here's the prerequisite. We have to pray with a forgiving heart. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. If you have an unforgiving heart, your prayers will not be effectual. Now, 
Let me make a quick distinction between two kinds of forgiveness. I think many of you understand. One kind of forgiveness is conditional. Luke 17, 3 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. I call that transactional forgiveness. In other words, there can only be reconciliation between two people if the offender repents. If he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, you can't be reconciled. You can't have the transaction of reconciliation. That's a transactional forgiveness that is conditioned upon the offender's repentance. This is not conditional, though, is it? If you're standing praying and you realize, I've got something against someone, forgive. No condition. It doesn't say if he repents. It just says, if I've got something against someone because I think they've offended me, I need to forgive them unconditionally. What that is, is a disposition of forgiveness. Not transactional forgiveness, but dispositional forgiveness. And what does that mean? It means that I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to have ill will toward them. I'm not going to have malice toward them. I'm not going to demand vengeance from them. Ephesians 4, 30 and 31 speaks to this. This kind of forgiveness that's in the heart. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's a dispositional forgiveness in the heart. I'm not holding it against them. I'm letting it go. And if they do repent, I will gladly embrace them and be reconciled. That can't happen yet, but my heart is a forgiving heart toward them. And friends, this is consistent with other scriptures which insist on our prayers being heard only if our, our heart is right. Consider Psalm 24, 3 to 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and not sworn deceitfully. God's concerned. If you're going to draw near to him, you have to have a, a pure heart free of falsehood and deceit. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you're bringing your gift before the altar and there you remember somebody has something against you, leave your gift, stop your worship, go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I want the men to lift up holy hands in prayer. In James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And husbands, I trust you're aware of 1 Peter 3.7. Husbands live according to knowledge, katanosin, sensitively with your wife, lest, you know it, your prayers be hindered. You, you don't treat your wife right, your prayers are going to be hindered. So God is concerned about the inward disposition of our heart when we pray. And in particular here, we need to have a forgiving heart for our prayers to be effectual. Let me just wrap up with a few final applications in review. Understand that God wants to show himself strong on behalf of his people. Jesus said, you saw me cast, you know, wither this fig tree. Lord, look at that fig tree. It's, it's withered. How'd that happen? Have faith in God. 
Peter, if you just have faith, you know, to say to this mountain, be removed, and you don't doubt, it will be done. God wants to do great things through his people. There's a, a verse in 2 Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro, seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. But then next, understand that undoubting faith is the key to seeing God accomplish mighty works. Like Abraham, if God says it, we must believe it. Then understand that faith can grow. Faith can be enlarged. How? By an expanded knowledge of God's word, by acting in God's, on God's word, and by remembering God's past faithfulness. I have a little saying, former faithfulness fuels future faith. Oh, I remember I trusted God in the past, and yeah, he came through. It helps me to trust him now and believe him now. He's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. And then I ask very practically, is there any area of your life right now where God is calling you to believe him, trust him, and not doubt? You know, there are single people who want to be married but can you believe God's promise of Psalm 8411, which says, I will withhold no good thing, or he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly? He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. If he hasn't provided you with a spouse, it's not a good thing right now. Anything that's a good thing, he will not withhold from you. And when it becomes a good thing for you to have a husband or a wife, God will give that because he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Can you believe him? Maybe your job is in question or you're out of work and you need a job. Can you believe God's word? When it says in Proverbs 18, 16, a man's gift makes room for him and he will set him before kings. Psalm 76, 6, for not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Can you believe Proverbs 21, 1, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands, his channels of water, he turns it wherever he wills. You want that interview to go in your favor? God controls the interviewer. Can you trust God to provide that job for you? He wants you to work. If you, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. He says, seek first, yeah, you mothers in the home, raising children and fathers, how often are you faced with perplexities and you need wisdom, right? Many times in the course of a day, can you believe God when he says in James 1, 5, if any lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously. Lord, I don't know what to do with this child, but you promise if I lack wisdom, you'll give it. Lord, give me wisdom. Do you believe God? Can we trust God as a church that he will give us the right men to be elders and deacons in his time because he loves his church? Sometimes people struggle with giving. I know I'm supposed to give a portion to the Lord, but uh, it's hard to make ends meet. Can you trust and believe God when he says in Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce? And your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Or let's make that the cultural equivalent, okay? You say, yeah, I'm not looking for uh, a full barn. I don't even have a barn. And I'm not looking for vats of wine. But the cultural equivalent, God will bless you. You give to him. You honor him. Seek first his kingdom, Jesus said, and what you'll eat and drink and wear will be provided for you. Can you believe God for that? And finally, are your prayers being hindered in some area? 
There can be a number of reasons for that. It could be that God wants you to persist in prayer. In some cases, God's answer to our prayers is no. But make sure that one of the hindrances to your prayer is not an unforgiving spirit, any malice or ill will that you have toward anyone, because Jesus said that will hinder your prayers. And then if anyone is here and you are not a believer in Jesus, your prayers cannot be heard yet. Proverbs says the offering of the wicked is an abomination to God. Your prayer as an unbeliever is not pleasing to God. But here's the first prayer that will please God and he will answer. God, I believe that I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior you sent to pay for my sins so that I can be forgiven of my sins and on my way to heaven. You make that prayer, and God will be honored by that prayer. He will hear that prayer, and he will answer it, and he will save you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our faith to believe your promises and honor you so that you can unleash your mighty power in accordance with your will in our lives and through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.